Hey, we're in a series called Dysfunctional Family, and um, I promise we didn't name this series with your family in mind. This was just kind of a generic title. Uh, we started this back in, on Mother's Day, and we talked about the roles of uh, moms, and then last week we talked about what it means to find a godly mate, but uh, this week we're talking about when marriage isn't what you expected, and so uh, I think this is going to be applicable for all of us, those of us who are married, but also those of you who are not married, maybe one day will be married. Uh, it's going to apply to you as well. And so here's the thing. All of us have expectations, don't we? We have expectations about all kinds of things. And one of the things that we have expectations about is marriage. Uh, we have expectations about what it's going to be like when we go to college, maybe one day when we grow up and have a family. Um, but we all have expectations. And I was just trying to think about a, a time when expectations that I had did not meet up with the reality that, uh, that my life portrayed or, or what we went through. And I was thinking about uh, the first time we ever went to Water Country, USA. Anybody ever been to Water Country in Bush Gardens? Okay. So I remember being in high school, and uh, we were going to go to Water Country for the first time. And I had seen the pictures. I'd heard about it. I mean, it's a great water park if you've never, never been there. And uh, so immediately my mind was filled with things that, you know, we would do. It'd be, you know, water slides and wave pools and just all kinds of cool things that were going to uh, take place. We didn't realize that the time we picked was going to be the hottest day of the year. And if any of you have ever been um, to Virginia in, in peak August or whatever that looks like, uh, you understand that it gets hot in the south, doesn't it? And so, amen, that's right. And uh, so anyway, we go there and we uh, get a hotel room and it's me and my sister and my mom and my dad and um, we're staying there. And um, that night before, I mean, I just had all these things in my mind of like, what this is going to be like. But we happened to get the one room that the AC unit did not work in the hotel, right? And uh, my dad and I, both of us don't have the greatest patience, but here we are sitting in the hotel. We're all sweating. We've got the cover stripped off the bed, and my dad's like really frustrated. And he's like, I'm going down to the lobby, and I'm gonna, we're going to get a new room. Well, he goes down there, and the guy's like, I'm sorry. We have no other rooms. This is like literally the only room in the whole entire hotel. He's like, well, I'm going to have to go somewhere else because I, we can't stay in here. This is, it's just scorching hot. And uh, so the guy's like, there's no other places that you can go. And I mean, there's no openings. It's like the peak weekend for water country. He's like, well, I'm going to go to the Walmart or somewhere. I've got to get a fan because we can, our family cannot stay in here. And uh, he's like, man, there's, there's not anything open at this time of night. So we're just laying there in misery. And next thing I know, I'm laying in bed, and I hear just this pounding. Boom, boom, boom. I'm like, what is that noise? And my dad has got like a four-by-four four post, and he is just beating the AC unit on the back of this, just trying to get this thing to cut on. And I was like, what is going on? And he comes back in, and we never got it. I was like, well, we'll forget about it. We get up the next morning early. Didn't sleep great. We go and it's so hot. I mean, the sidewalks are just scorching. Like, you can't walk on there barefooted. Everybody's trying to walk in the grass. You know what I'm talking about? And so you're walking in the grass. You're bumping into people. And there's just people. It looks like if you've ever been to the beach when you see schools of fish. And all these people are just, I mean, that's what we're like navigating through all of these people. So we get to the wave pool. And if you've ever been there, you've seen the wave pool. And, you know, waves will come in and people stand there. But I remember standing on the edge of the concrete, looking out into the wave pool, and there's so many people. I'm like, how am I even going to be able to get out there? 
right? And so we're standing there, and we navigate our way through. We're just bumping into people, and we finally just, like, pick this spot that we're standing in. And if you've ever just been so close to somebody that you're just touching shoulders with them, and it's hot outside, and they're sweaty, and you're just bouncing up and down, and that's all you can do because you can't swim because there's so many people. And we're just, I'm just rubbing shoulders with the guy next to me, and I'm like, man, this is not at, not at all what I expected Williamsburg to be because my expectations and what reality, there was a big gap between there. Now, the same thing may be true for you. The same thing may be true for the job that you're in right now. The same thing may be true with what your marriage looks like right now, what your family looks like. All of our expectations have a reality, and we have to figure out what the difference is between the two and where we need to go from there. So that's what we're talking about today because here's the thing. Culture paints a picture of what reality should be for us, right? We look at sitcoms, we look at reality TV shows, we look at movies, we see uh, the Instagram feeds that pay people have, we have Facebook feeds, and we see, and it's like, why does my life not look like this person's life? And so this thing begins to take place. We compare our stuff with what other people have. Right? We look at other people's Facebook feed and we go, you know, I wish I had that. Or they look so happy. Or they go out of town all the time. And how come they get to build a house? And, how? and so we have all these expectations of what we feel like we should be entitled to and what we should have versus what other people have. And a lot of times what happens is bitterness take, takes place and jealousy takes place. And we go, you know what? I just deserve better. Like I need to do something about this because I don't have what I want or I don't have what I think I should have. But by our nature, our carnal nature, here's what I know is true, and this is true for you too, is we're not easily satisfied for a long period of time. If you don't believe me, just give a toddler a toy, right? You take them to the store, what happens? You give them a toy, they're like, I want this, mommy, and you take it home, and they go home and they play with it, and then like a week later, the thing's broken to pieces and they forgot all about it. It's like, I want a new toy. Same thing for us. How long do we keep a car? I mean, most people, they get tired of it, and they just trade it in to get another one because by our human and carnal nature, we are not easily satisfied. I've seen this happen over and over again, and maybe this is just my Facebook friends. I don't know if it's yours, but there's just this thing going around where people get mad about an experience that they have, like they go to a restaurant. You ever seen this? And they post about it, and, and the desire is for people to like, like their post and comment on it. Like, you could have 20 good experiences at a restaurant, and you have one bad one, and all of a sudden, the one bad one trumps the other one. And so people will name the rest restaurant. I don't know if they're trying to get free food or what, but they'll tag it, and they'll say, you know, just ate here, and it was terrible, and the worst service I've ever been to, and blah, blah, blah. And, they'll go, and there are people, like, liking and liking and liking, and you're checking to see if, like, yeah, people will agree with me also because, you know, I know that I'm right. And then you, they'll comment like, don't ever go back there. You go, girl. Don't, don't, you, don't you go back there anymore. And you're like, you know, I'm not. And then there's this Facebook thing because we feel this entitlement. Like, we should have a good experience. This should be great. We should be happy. And so when that doesn't line up, we have to understand why this is true. So I think the same thing is true for marriage. People go into marriages with positive thoughts, don't they? I mean, nobody goes, you know what? I'm getting old. I should just settle. Like, I mean, it's just me, the cat, and the goldfish at the house. Like, I mean, this guy, he doesn't look so bad. And yeah, he's got his flaws, but you know what? I'm, I'm getting old. Let's, I'm just going to settle. Like, nobody goes into the marriage just thinking that it's going to be bad. Most people get engaged thinking this is going to be great, right? It's going to be pure euphoric bliss. I mean, everything I've ever wanted. Now, my wife and I, 
we do a lot of wedding photography, and I've heard groomsmen say on the wedding day, oh, you know, no more fun for you, old ball and chain, you know. After you walk down the aisle, there goes all your freedom, and so they joke about like that. But nobody goes into marriage thinking that, you know, their life is over. Most people think, this is my the mate that God has given me, and we're going to be joined together. It's going to be glorious. We'll start a family, and, you know, we're going to still finish each other's sentences, I mean, it's going to be like, we're going to die in the same bed when we're old, like on the movie The Notebook. I mean, we're just going to, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's people's picture of marriage a lot of times. But something happens. People get married. Life happens. You bring two sinful people together. It creates a rub. There's a little bit of tension. There's disagreements. Kids get in. Jobs, stresses of life. All these things take place. You begin to fight more. And one day you wake up and you're going, is this really my life? Like you look out and people go, is this the rest of my life? Is this what I'm going to have to settle with or deal with? And then people begin to think, this can't be what God intended for me. Now, if you look at, we're going to turn to Genesis uh, 29. I'm just going to summarize the verse uh, leading up to verse 25 for you. But I want to paint the picture just so you get a a full perspective of what this means. Uh, In Genesis chapter uh, 29, here we see a story about Jacob and Jacob meets this guy named Laban, and Laban has two daughters, one of those named Leah and the other's Rachel. And here's what the Bible describes about the two daughters. Now, uh, Leah is the older daughter, and Rachel, we don't have to put that up yet. Sorry, guys. Laban is uh, the father. We have uh, Leah being the older daughter, Rachel being the younger. And it was customary during that time that the older daughter was married off first, for those of you that know anything about that. And so he sees Rachel for the first time, and the Bible describes her as being, like, so beautiful. Like, it just talks about her beauty and how he longed to marry her, but he realized that he couldn't marry her. And if you go back and understand the customs of um, the people back then, there was what's called a dowry offering. And so basically, he wants to work for seven years, and in return for his seven years of work, he asked for Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban agrees, okay, seven years from now, you can have this beautiful daughter of mine named Rachel. And so the Bible says that the seven years of time seem like a couple of days. Now, I feel the same way with my wife, okay? I'm just saying, like, a month, it just feels like time passes so so short because it's just so great. And maybe you feel the same way about your spouse. But he was in such love with her, he understood that, you know, this was a very small sacrifice to pay seven years for the beauty that he was going to spend in the, the rest of his life with Rachel. And so the Bible says that the seven years came to a close, and then the wedding took place. Now, many of you have been to a lot of weddings, but they used to really celebrate, and it was more than just like a day's festivity. Like it, it wasn't like you show up you, like 30 minutes before the bride walks down the aisle, and then right after that, you go into the reception, and then you go home. I mean, in, if you look at um, over in Mideastern cultures or Western cultures, you, they, these take place for like days at a time. And so the wedding comes, and there's this humongous feast. Now, remember, there's no electricity back then, and it gets dark, and there's not street lights and all these things. So everything they had was by fire candlelight. And the Bible says that after the feast and after the reception, they went on to, you know, the, the wedding night. Okay, and here they are, and they got married off at night, and and we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions when we read the next verse. And and so here it is. Jacob rolls over the next morning. Sunlight comes up. He looks over to the side, and laying beside him, 
it says on verse 25, it came about in the morning that behold, it was Leah. In other words, he rolled over and he went, ah! Now, the Bible describes Leah in contrast to Rachel's beauty as the one with weak eyes. Now, I don't know if that means like something wasn't right about her eyes or what, but regardless of, there's beauty and then there's Leah. And he rolls over and it's Leah. And he's shocked. And you would be too. And so then you begin to process, like, how did this happen? So, so we begin to think, okay, there's a veil, and they kept the bride's face covered, and it was dark, and he probably had a lot to drink that night anyway. And, you know, so there's a whole number of things that could play into it. But regardless of, he feels instant regret. He's, this mistake has been made, and he's angry. And you can go read the rest of the story in Genesis chapter 29. But I wonder how many of you or how many people you know feel the same way. In other words, they roll over one day, or, or, or time passes, and they look at the person that's laying beside them, and they think, have I made a mistake? Is this really the rest of my life? In other words, ladies, you roll over one morning, you know, you look, your husband's laying beside you a Saturday morning, and it was nothing like you saw on The Bachelor. I mean, it's drools coming down the side of his face. He's snoring, white t-shirt, stains on it. I mean, it's just not exactly what you anticipated. He used to be, you know, Prince Charming. He used to take you out. You guys used to date all the time. And now his idea of fun is going to the Waffle House and, you know, spending his Saturday night there. And he, he used to do all these things for you and used to talk on the phone for hours. And now the only time he calls you is, you know, when he wants you to pick up something from the grocery store. Same thing for you guys, right? You get up Saturday morning and you just envision what the, all the TVs and reality shows portray it to be. She wakes up in the morning. The hair hasn't moved. It's perfect. Makeup still on. I mean, just glorious. Except this time when you're standing in there at the, the table and you're eating your fruit, look, she walks out, curlers in her hair, no makeup, and you like spit it out on you. And you're like, not at all how I pictured it to be when we got married. And so you might think to yourself, you know, she was so much more spontaneous and fun back then. We used to do all kinds of road trips. We used to do all these things, and now the kids get all the attention. And so a lot of times people go into this with unrealistic expectations of what they think marriage is going to be because we compare, it's our nature, to compare our relationships a lot of times with what we grew up seeing. Think about it. Think about your parents or whoever raised you. Who was the one who did the cooking? Who was the one who did the cleaning? Who was the one that washed the car? Who was the one that loaded the dishwasher? And you go into this with like, you know, my, my mom, she did all the cooking. My dad, you know, he took care of the cars. And so this was like in my mind when I got married, okay, I knew my responsibilities. I would do this. She would do that. We get married. That's not exactly how she grew up. And so there's a little bit of we had to work that out in our early years of marriage. And maybe the same thing is true for you. You thought it would be glorious, and then you find yourself arguing about which way the toilet paper roll goes. Is it on the top, or is it under the bottom? You know, and you're like, honey, I thought we went over this. Thought, thought you got this figured out. The toilet paper goes on the bottom, you know. Or which way you squeeze the toothpaste. Is it from the bottom, or is it from the top? I mean, just little things that you do growing up play into your marriage as you get older. But here's the thing we need to realize. The first and primary thing is marriage was designed with a purpose. It wasn't like God just went, mm, let's see, what else could I do? Let's, let's marriage. That's what we're going to do. If you think back to Genesis, 
it says that Adam, he was alone, right? And he needed a helper. He needed a mate. And so the Bible says that he created, that God created woman out of him. And then it says when he created her that this was very good. Like this was God's idea for man not to be alone, to have a mate and for them to, to become one. And so God had a primary purpose for this. And I can, you remember when Adam is naming all the animals, right? And he's like naming them and they're coming across and he's like, you know, donkey, camel. And that must have been a pretty daunting task, you know? And he gets through. And then could you imagine going from animals to seeing Eve? That's why he called her, whoa, man. That's because it's, not, it's unlike anything else he had seen before. And so there was a purpose. And here's what the purpose was designed to do, okay? You need to get this. The purpose of marriage was to point us, man and woman, to God. That was the idea from the beginning. It was for us to be able to reflect the gospel through marriage. In other words, what I mean by that is this. With a man and a woman coming together to reflect humility in a relationship, to reflect compassion, to reflect grace, and to reflect forgiveness. All of those, that's what the gospel is. It's for us in the unity of marriage to forgive our spouse, to humble ourselves, to show compassion, to show grace, because that in turn reflects Jesus Christ and points us to Him. And so marriage shows God's goodness and fidelity. And it provided a helper for Adam. It could be said this way. Marriage was designed for God to display his glory and joy for his people in the world. God's idea when he created marriage is that when people looked at a Christ-centered marriage, that they would be encouraged, that they would see a hope, that they would see grace, that they would see humility and that joy in people. Like that is the model. That was the model from the beginning. And so here's what we need to understand. When division, when divisiveness, when discord, when divorce, when all those D words come in together, they ultimately corrupt what God designed it to be. It, they des- it corrupts what God designed it for be- to be. And so when we were created in the image of God, when we were brought together for His glory, for His joy and His purposeness, when the world looks out and sees that, it corrupts the very image of God. Of God, and, and I can just say this because you know it to be true, that statistics show that the church is not far off from the rest of the world when it comes to the divorce rate. There used to be a, a great margin between the two, and now as you look out, going back, it's easier for us just to go, you know what, we're going to start over, just wipe this slate clean, and people go, meh, it doesn't matter. And so Christians, your family, your friends are not out of the boat when it comes to the statistics. And so if you're single, you need to understand this, that there's going to come a point where your expectations for marriage and whoever you find are going to come together and they're going to clash. And what do you do when they clash? Married people, the same thing. Your expectations and your spouse, when they come together and they clash, how do we work that out to display God's glory and bring joy to Him? And that's what we're going to unpack today. And so Paul gives us a little bit of insight here. If you want to, in your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 22, and I'm just going to say this. This is probably the most read verse at every wedding I've ever been to. And we've photographed almost 100 weddings. And I would say that about 97% of the time, this verse, this passage of Scripture is read. Why? 
Why is this, why do we need to understand this? And, and for many of you, you're going to go, oh, no, it's, it's that verse, maybe. Or you might go, oh, I know that verse. Or I've read that so many times. It's because we got to go back to the model. When things don't go right, when things don't line up what we, that, what we think they should be, when things clash, we go back to the model. And so Paul gives us the model in Ephesians chapter 5. And so we're going to start in verse 22, and it talks to the specific roles of women, and it talks to the specific roles of men as it relates to the marital relationship. And so verse 22 says this, Wives, be subject, or another word that in your version may be submit, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, ladies, this is for you. Guys, this verse is not for you. It's also not a verse for you to go say to your wife, hey, you're supposed to submit. That's not how this verse works. Okay? So if you've ever used that verse before, it probably didn't work out real good for you. So ladies, this is for you. And here's, I want you to underline the words, to the Lord, because what this is saying is, wives be subject or wives submit to your husbands as though to the Lord. In other words, everything that you do for your husband, you do it as though you were doing it to Christ. Okay? That's in the essence of what this verse is saying. Now, there's a lot of negative connotation with this verse these days, okay, with the, with the whole women's liberation movement and, you know, equality and all those things. First of all, let me just say this. Paul is not saying, number one, that in the, the levelness of, of God, man is better than woman, okay? They are the exact same. They have different functioning roles in the marriage, but here's what he's saying. Ladies, you need to submit, you need to treat, you need to come under, subject yourself to your husband, and, and if you really want to break it down and do a word study, then basically what it means is the leadership of him. Okay, It's not saying you do everything he tells you. It's not saying when he gets the final say and role. He's saying, serving to the Lord, come under as though you would Jesus. And men should not require submission. Submission is for someone to willingly do. And when you see the Greek word, Greek word there, it's hupotasso, which is actually a military term when you, when you go back to the origins of it. Uh, it means to subject yourself to. So again, no one forces submission. You can't force someone to submit. It is a willing choice that somebody has to make. And you can't command that of someone. It's something that takes place internally inside you, ladies. And so it's a willing choice that a godly woman makes unto Christ. And how does that work? First of all, ladies, it starts with respect. Okay? That is the number one thing that men desire. I know you think it may be something else. I promise you it ultimately goes back to respect because when the husband feels disrespected, then this thing takes place inside of him that, that it automatically, it's like this war begins to take place between the two. And so the Bible even warns, young, if you go back to Proverbs, and you can look it up, chapter 21, verse 19, the Bible, there's numerous verses throughout Scripture that talks about young men and who they're supposed to marry. One of the ones that it says in verse 19 of chapter 21, it says, it's better to live in the desert than with a quarrelsome wife. In other words, it's like, it's better for you to go out to Arizona where it's like 110 degrees and just camp out and live than it is to live with somebody who's just going to argue with you all the time. So if you're a young man here, you, you kind of need to settle that inside of you and you know, is this a person that I foresee this happening in our relationship? And this is ultimately ladies for you. If you're not married, then, then here, here's what you need to understand. If you are married, then it's just a reminder. 
Ladies, if you're not married, you need to ask yourself the most important question. Am I willing to yield to this man as Christ's representative in my life? Can I see myself submitting and coming under this guy's leadership for our household, not to tell me what to do or boss me around, can I let him lead me and our family for the rest of my life? And that's the question you need to understand in verse 22. Verse 23 says, For the husband is head of the wife, wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. And so the focus here, men, is on leadership, on leading the family. You, place, you being the model and, and the family coming along beside you and following you. And so Paul, again, is not degrading women. He's not degrading their roles. He's just saying they have different expectations when it comes. And the man is supposed to spiritually lead the household for the family. And ladies, for you, no man can lead a woman who refuses to follow. Now, I know, and this is a whole other sermon, but... Um, Maybe you're here and you want your husband to lead and he's not there. Maybe he's not even a Christian. You know, that's a whole different topic. But for a Christly marriage, for a husband who professes his faith in Jesus, a wife who professes her faith in Jesus, they come together in the marital union, that that part should take place and the man should spiritually lead the household. So husbands, our call here is to lead our wives. Verse 24 says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love. Underline this word right there, love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And here's why I want you to underline it. Because that word right there, love, when you say I love tacos and I love my wife, there's different kinds of loves there, right? Right? I love the beach and I love my daughter different types of love there. And so it's easy for us to go, yeah, I love my wife. I mean, I got this. I love my husband. We got this. But he's talking about a specific type of love here. And here's the good thing. He gives us an illustration of what this looks like. And here it is. And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In other words, men, here's your model. Paul tells us to love your wives, tells me to love my wives as an example of Jesus loving the church. And how does he do that? Love her sacrificially. So what, is, what does loving sacrificially look like? Because Jesus was the model. He came did not consider himself equality, came down, submitted himself, gave his life as a ransom for, for those, and then it says he sacrificed himself. So for us as husbands to sacrifice, to make sacrifice in our marriage, you don't have to get your, I don't have to get my way all the time, right? And this is a, a, maybe a corny or practical example, you know, allowing her to choose the restaurant, you know, allowing her to be right. Even though, you know, I, I feel like that she's wrong, allowing her. So making sacrifices inside the marital relationship. He's saying, if you want to do that, if you want to love her as way Christ loved the church, then you have to make sacrifices. So how? Jesus goes to the cross as the initiator of reconciliation. He goes to the cross as the initiator. So for us as men, and you can read up a little bit more 1 Peter chapter 3, and the roles there that he talks about, Peter talks about, here we see us. We need to be the initiators in the relationship. When it comes to reconciliation and discord and strife and all these things that take place, 
Husbands, our role in leading the family is to go and, and start the conversation. And man, I'm going to tell you, that's something that preached to me. Because I'm not always the great, greatest when it comes to that. And so that's how you love your wife. You sacrifice as though unto Jesus, just like the woman. Here's the other thing. This type of love is an act of will. It's something that has to be done with intentionality. You have to, to do this out of your will. It's not just something that happens. Some people say, well, I'm just not feeling it anymore. How many people have you heard say that? How many people do you know at your workplace or, or in your family? Just, We're not, I'm not feeling it anymore. It used to be great, but it's, it's not the same anymore. This type of love that he talks about here is not an act of feeling. It's an act of will. You do the things that love does, and you will feel the things that love feels. Let me say that again. When you do the things that love does, you will feel the things that love feels, and that's what he's telling us. So if we stop right here, we will see that Paul, the goal for men and for women is to please take care of each other. Husbands, love, honor your husband. Men, sacrifice and lead your wife. Verse 28, so husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. Now, I, I'm just going to be honest, transparent moment here. You know, I, I like to eat, okay? And um, many of you probably do too. When we go to eat at family um, gatherings, I'm normally the first one in line after my grandparents and the kids. It's just the way, I, I mean, I'm nice, I'm courteous. It's like, you guys go through the line, all right, I'm next, you know. And we, there's this like running joke in our family, up, oh, Jared, you know, he beat us to the front of the line. Family reunions, anywhere we go, I'm just, I want to, it's natural for me to take care of me. When, mom, when I'm starving, I don't look at myself and go, all right, you be quiet, stomach, We're not, I'm not feeding you today. No, that's like, all right, I got to, you know, quench this stomach, so I got to eat. So I want to take care of me. If it comes down, you know, to a, a burning building and, and, and whether or not to get out, I'm not going to have to, and, and I'm by myself, I'm not going to go, eh, we'll see. You know, I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of. And so this is what he's saying in here. Husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. And so we would want to take a bullet for her, right? Let her make a choice as though we were taking care of ourselves. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now think about this for a second. When two become one, when man and woman come together, they're joined in marital union, and they become one, when you do something that hurts your spouse, what happens? It hurts you too. If you say something dishonoring to her, she gets mad. The chances are she may say, say something dishonoring to you. So it, it's like it comes back to you. It doesn't just hurt her. It hurts you as well. And so what he's saying is he who loves his wife, who sacrifices for his wife, he loves himself. And so when you show honor to her, when you sacrifice for her, when you affirm her, when you do all those things, it's like it comes back and it edifies and builds you up as well. Otherwise, Paul is saying, if you want to be miserable, don't love your wife. If you want to make your marriage unlike the expectations you had, then don't sacrifice for her, men. Don't let her win every now and again. You don't love in order to get a response. That's not what love is. Verse 29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. 
So when you take care of her, guys, you take care of yourself. When you take care of her, you take care of yourself. You know, a lot of ladies, those of you who proverb, um, follow Lisa Turkhurst and uh, Proverbs 31 Ministries, um, there, there's this saying that, like, you know, I want to be a Proverbs 31 woman. And, and guys, maybe you've heard that before. You've read Proverbs 31, and you know what that looks like for a woman. And you're like, man, I want a, I want a Proverbs 31 woman when I get married. Single guys, you might be saying, I want a, a, a girl that looks just like everything in Scripture it says in Proverbs 31. But here's the thing. You can't have a Proverbs 31 woman without first being an Ephesians 5 man. And that's for me as well. You can't expect her to be this, man, if you're not going to be an Ephesians 5 man. So what about when marriage is bad? People want somebody to blame, right? Our tendency, our carnal nature is for us to deflect and look and go, it's not my fault, it's their fault. Here's what you have to understand, and this is for all of you who are single. When you get married, your spouse is not your enemy, okay? We have to understand first and foremost that they're not the enemy. They're part of you. Hurt them, hurt yourself. We're all sinful people when we come together. It all, every Every divorce, every separation, every, probably every argument, I would be willing to say, goes back to one thing. Selfishness. It all goes back to selfishness. If you could trace everything back, you would see that it goes to selfishness. And selfishness is the enemy of oneness in marriage. And so sin is at the root of all strife, all marital conflict, and it's a rebellion against God. And so it may when it comes to money, when it comes to stuff, every adultery that's ever take pl taken place, every lust, everything it comes back to selfishness, me getting exactly what I want, me getting my needs met. And so we go outside of the boundaries of marriage or we look other places or we look for stuff, it goes back to internal self. And so in Philippians, if you have your Bibles, Philippians 2 we're going to look at verse 3 and 4 for just a moment. Paul gives us the antidote, the remedy for when this creeps in. So again, just while you're turning there, every argument, every expectation, it pretty much can be summed back to the selfishness of one party. And so here's what he says. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. And when you look at that word right there, it's rendered in the Greek, the rivalry between each other, partisanship. And it speaks to the pride that prompts, or prompts people to push their own agenda. So when you become selfish, you push your own agenda, my needs above the other person's need. And Paul says, do nothing from this attitude, or the next thing he uses, empty conceit. In other words, that means empty glory. The pursuit of personal glory that will get you nothing. Do nothing with selfishness or empty glory but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. And so this is not natural for us as human beings, but this is what Paul says is the remedy for selfishness. Don't do this, do this. Humility trumps selfishness. Humility trumps empty conceit. Number, uh, verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so this is the answer for selfishness. When you roll over one day and you look 
And you see that person that you've married, and you say, man, things have not, not what I expected. You begin to place false um, ideas and, and things that that person can't even carry or weight on them, and you need to look internally. You need to humble yourself, and you need to go, okay, am I being unrealistic? Am I expecting something from them that, that I shouldn't? Or we look at them, I want them to look a certain way. And so it comes back to us, us, that feeling, that gratification. And so everything can be traced back to selfishness. And to, to counter that, we have to humble ourselves. And we have to treat the person as though we were treating ourselves, not looking for our own personal interest. And when we look at what Jesus says, this is exactly the model that he showed us. He says, Do, I did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. He said, if the person wants to be first, then what they should be able to do is be last. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we see the remedy, the antidote for selfishness here is to love others more than yourself, humble yourself, treat other people, be willing to be last, not always having to be right. And if you do that, you can quench the selfishness that comes up. Now, this is, again, not just for married people. Those of you, again, who are single, that one day you'll be married. You're going to have to settle this idea. There's going to come a point in your time you're going to want to have your way. You feel like you're entitled to it. You see it on TV. You see your friends have this, and you go, I want this. And so you become selfish. And how do you do that? You have to humble yourself. You have to quiet yourself. You have to die to yourself. And then you go, okay, what's, what's reality? Is, are my expectations not real. I wanted to show you something for just a moment. I'm not, I'm not a gardener by any means. Um, my grandparents were here on Thursday. They've been married 66 years. And, uh, man, it was just awesome to see them here. And, and here I am, 11 years. And first of all, let me say, I don't have it all together. Like, you know, you can ask my wife. I fail in a lot of areas. The good thing is I'm not standing up here telling you what Jared 101 says, I'm telling you what the Bible says, and so I go back to the model. But those of you who do any type of planting, you know, you can look at a, at a tree, a bush, a plant, or something and tell whether it's healthy or not, right? And I thought this would be a great illustration of just marriage and expectations and kind of what our world looks like. And so anytime we want to plant or, or grow something, it starts with this process, right? We take a seed, you dig up the soil, you plant the seed, you cover it up with dirt, you water it, it has to get sun, you water it, and there's a process. And so this is what relationships look like. It all starts in a process. You spend time with each other, you go out, affirmation, you know, you spend lots and lots of money, go out on dates, you do things you don't want to do. Ladies, you might watch football with them. You know, guys, you might go to the ballet that you don't want to. You make sacrifices for each other, and it's kind of like work, Right? And as you do that, you begin to cultivate, you're building a relationship, and you're planting seeds, and it's growing. And the more you nurture it, the more you care for it, the more you spend time with it, it grows. Neglect it, what happens? It begins to die, and then you go, okay, I need to nurture it a little bit more. I need to do some of these things. I need to affirmation. I, need to, I mean, and all these different things play into it, because ultimately, this is the model, right? When you go to the store and you pick out the seed packet, what does it show you? It shows you a picture of what it should look like if you do all these things right. 
Same thing is true for the Bible. When we look at marriage, the Bible gives us a model. Here we go. Okay, my marriage should look like this, so I have to do these things, or else I won't yield this result. Do it our own way. A lot of times it will look like this. Do it God's way. It begins to flourish. And so there's this process that takes place. And so people get married. And at some point, and if they're not even married, maybe even your relationship, you're now, you're engaged, you're dating a guy, whatever it looks like. You feel like it's like this. I mean, there's a moment in every relationship, it's at the pinnacle. It's at the peak. Everybody's like, oh, it's just the greatest it's ever been. I mean, you know, we, we see eye to eye and we share, you know, I mean, all these things take place and you're like, it's just great and glorious. Every marriage that's probably ever failed at some point, it was like this. But something happens. Selfishness creeps in. Pride creeps in, jealousy creeps in, things creep in, and all of a sudden, we don't go from here, we go to here, and we begin to neglect. And it's like not watering, it's not like not giving enough sunlight. We say, I know what it should be, but all of a sudden, it begins to die. And the more and more we neglect the relationship, the more and more the leaves wither, the thing begins to die. And eventually, if given long enough, it will go from this to completely, not just this, completely dead. Here's the problem. This is the model. Jesus gives us the answer, the remedy, what we should do to get here. Society tells us, culture tells us, movies tell us, TV shows tell us, talk shows tell us, your friends, your family tell you, you know what, if you can't have this, you know what you should do? Get another one. It doesn't say water. It doesn't say tend to it. It doesn't say give it enough sunshine. It says, you, if you can't have this, just cash it in. Get a new one. And so people will spend time going through all types of headache, all types of problems, and just want to start over instead of pouring back in to revitalize that relationship. Because you know what? To go from dead to there takes a lot of work. And some people think it's just easier for us to do it. So what do we do? What do you do? You're here. I mean, you feel like the fire's grown out. Things have not uh, panned out how you thought they would be. The expectations of what you had, where you're living right now, there's a humongous gap. The first thing we have to see is this. One, all of us are sinners. We're equal at the cross. The first thing we need to do is confess to Christ. Father, let me own my peace. Let me own. I can't fix that. I can't fix my spouse. I can't fix the person, you know, that, that's on the other side. I can only fix myself. Father, I die to self. Confess your sins. Ask that he would humble you and seek him. Because I think a lot of people just go in and they're going to find this perfect mate. And, and maybe there are people out there. I just hadn't met them yet. Maybe there's people out there who actually think that I have, I mean, everything we do is just splendorous and glorious and there's nothing wrong. And, but what if God, and this, I love this, this phrase, it's J.D. Greer. He says, what if God's main intention in marriage wasn't to make you happy by giving you a perfect mate, but to teach you to love like Jesus by giving you an imperfect mate so that you could learn to love and forgive the, lay, the way he forgave you? Man, 
His goal wasn't to give you a perfect one, but an imperfect one. So it, again, it always goes back to the gospel so that you can show humility, grace, compassion, and forgiveness to the person. Because what would happen if we were both perfect? Why would we need Jesus? You would seek him more. You would show that to, to your spouse. She would show it to you. And because of that, it would be the greatest marriage that it could possibly be. The other things is maybe you need to change your expectations and ask yourself, are my expectations godly? Am I placing unrealistic expectations on the other person? And ask God to open your eyes. Because I promise you, it's never one-sided. There's always a small, even a small percentage that the other person owns. And pray that God would change your heart. So I want to close with this. Nine ways to ruin your marriage, okay? Just want to go through these, and they're, they're kind of lighthearted, uh, sarcastic. But this is, if you, if you do these nine things, then you're guaranteed to begin to ru- ruin your marriage. Number one, be selfish. Always have to have your way, no matter what. You have to always be right. If there's only enough money in the family to do one thing and she wants to do another or he wants to do another, then make sure you get your way. Make demands instead of requests. I'm entitled to this. I, I, I'm owed this. And then save your courtesy for strangers, not for your spouse. Number two, pick at each other. Intentionally annoy your spouse on purpose. Be critical of the smallest details, everything from the toilet paper to who has to do certain things. And be vigilant about every offense. Always get the last word. Don't ever let your partner leave with dignity. As they walk out, make sure you're whipping them on the way out. Number three, let the kids be more important than your spouse. Show your kids more grace than you do your spouse. Invest in what they do. Invest in all the sports and activities that they do and not do what your spouse wants to do. And then fill up all your alone time with kids and never go out together. Number four, show disrespect, especially in public. And do it with lots of name calling. Complain to your friends about your spouse. Even worse, if your spouse is in front of you. Do it with non-verbalcations. The more eye rolls and the more head size or heavy size, the better. Number five, refuse to meet the emotional needs. Men and women are different. They have different expectations. Men are visual, physical. Women are emotional. Make sure you never meet their expectations. And then blow off your spouse's needs. Women Blow off his physical needs and desire for you to look your best and to show you off. And then men, don't show your wife that you appreciate her or don't talk to her close or hold her close. Number six, treat your friends better than your spouse. Call your friends just to talk, but never call your spouse unless you need something. Make your friends a nice meal when they're having a bad day. Make your spouse SpaghettiOs. Number, uh, never fix stuff around your house, but help others. This one's specifically for guys. Number seven, be a pansy. Be passive and never take responsibility or any initiative. Number eight, ladies, this is for you. Be his mother. Always tell him what to do because without him he couldn't manage. Say things like, make sure you take an umbrella and wear a coat when it's raining, and then make sure you say, I told you so, as often as possible. And the last one, Number nine, when you're angry, blow up. Yell, scream, or quietly say hurtful words. Dredge up past hurts, hit or slap each other, and lose control. And if you do these nine things, then we guarantee you're on the process 
to ruining your marriage. Now, again, this is supposed to be more of a joke and lighthearted, but it is true. And that's why many marriages fail. Again, we go back to the model, what your relationship could be. You don't, let me say this to you, if you're in the process right now and it's not good, it does not have to be that way. Don't settle. Let's pray. Father, I just, uh, I pray that these words, um, first of all, would just take root in our hearts because I know I don't stand up here as, as a perfect husband or, or father. Um, I go back to you as the source of my strength and as the leader of my house. Lord, I go back to your word and I, and I just ask, Father, if there's any areas first in my life that I'm not being the man that I need to be, if I'm not being the husband that I need to be, Lord, that, that the Holy Spirit would just convict me of that, that I would confess, that I would repent, not just repent and confess to you, but also to my spouse, so that we can, God, thrive and flourish together in our marriage. And I, and I pray, Lord, for the people this uh, church today, God, that we don't have unrealistic expectations. God, it's not supposed to be perfect. You never designed it to be perfect, God. But you do, God, want us to do our best to follow the model and be the husbands and the wives that we should be. And so I pray for every marriage in here. God, I pray for those who've been married for 50 years, those who've been married for two years, God. I pray that we would all ask ourselves, Lord, what areas am I being selfish in? And then do what your word says and humble ourselves, God. Be willing to be last. Be willing to serve the other person because that is what true sacrificial love looks like. And I pray for every marriage at the bridge that sacrificial love might take place. Not, not love that we have for just an acquaintance, God. Not love that we have for something that's fleeting, God. But the love that you intentionally went to the cross to die for us. That type of love. And we pray, Lord, that we would celebrate and give you glory when it's due. And be able to reflect the gospel in our relationships. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen. amen.